Hello everyone and welcome back to Founder Friendly. I'm your host Danny and today we welcome Jonathan Goldberg. Jonathan is the CEO and founder of Carbon Direct. Jonathan graduated from Yale and started his career in the commodities division of Goldman Sachs and then became a partner at Glencore. Prior to launching Carbon Direct, he founded and served as CIO for BBL Commodities, Commodity Hedge Fund. And finally, he sits on the board of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Jonathan, thank you so much for giving up your time today and welcome to Founder Friendly. Thank you for having me. So let's get right into it. I'm curious, when did the idea for Carbon Direct first come out? Yeah, it really came from some of the work I've been doing at Columbia and some other institutions around the importance for, for carbon management. You know, my background's in energy and energy investing. And in doing that, I got very interested in energy transition, policy around energy transition, and climate change. In particular, spending a lot of time with scientists who are focused on CO2 removal and CO2 management using engineered and nature-based approaches. Two things were obvious to me. One, we were doing nowhere near the amount we need relative to what the IPCC is saying. That's becoming more clear now. It was clear two years ago, but it's becoming more apparent how far behind we are. Um, And thinking through kind of how energy systems worked and combining that with that scientific need really was the origin story for Carbon Direct, and that was about two years ago. So for our listeners, Carbon Direct has two main divisions, the investment management and the CO2 management side. So can you explain for our listeners what each of these divisions does and who the main client is for both of them? Yeah, so I mean, it's our our view that if carbon management is going to scale, and when we talk about scale, you know, we move, just to put this in perspective, in volume terms, there's about five gigatons per year of, of stuff, of things that are moved in the oil and gas industry. Carbon management needs to move twice that amount if we're going to hit our our climate goals. That is a massive undertaking. Um, to do that requires both more supply and that supply we're helping to address through capital formation. So our investment business invests dedicated capital into carbon capture, carbon utilization, carbon storage, hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuels. At the same time, it's great to kind of invest in these leading technologies but we think it could be even more impactful to help influence the development of demand for them. So our client-facing business works with leading corporates. Microsoft probably has the most established of all the corporate programs out there, but we're working with about 40 clients now. And the clients all have made various forms of net zero or decarbonization pledges. They want to do them and they need scientific help to, to fulfill what they've committed to doing. Uh, So really the backbone of our team, and this is consistent with the founding, is a wonderful group of scientists. So there's about 60 scientists on our team now with a range of expertise across nature-based and engineered solutions. So our customer business works with clients to fulfill their goals, and our investment business works to deploy capital smartly in the space. So we'll get into the investment management side in a minute, but I'm interested to learn more about the management and advisory service. So you mentioned you partnered with Microsoft. I know you've also worked with Shopify before. I'm curious what the process looks like when you start working with these companies. How does it start? And then what do you set out to achieve? And what things do you offer? Yeah, it depends on the client and by the industry. I think when you you look across the board, some clients need sort of soup to nuts help. So it's designing a strategy um, that is could start with just carbon accounting. So what is the problem? How many tons of CO2 are you emitting? Scope one, scope two, scope three. Um, and with the SEC recently um, mandating or proposing to mandate uh, disclosure around those emissions, that's more important for companies than ever. We can help directly with com- companies on that. We also have some partners who specialize in carbon accounting. Once you kind of figure out what the 
amount of emissions are, we work with clients on specific ways to do decarbonization strategies to lower those overall footprints. It could be changing fuels. So if you're an airline, how do you use sustainable aviation fuels? Most of our clients are already quite good at procuring renewable power. So it's not something that there's a, a huge need for us to step in. They're already good at doing it. Microsofts of the world are all very, very adept at doing long-term renewable power purchasing agreements. And then ultimately, there's a lot of carbon that, that companies don't have a solution for. They have residual emissions that are going to last, that there's no obvious economic path to decarbonize. And our role there is to help them put together a portfolio of, of carbon credits, carbon removal credits that can eliminate those residual emissions by purchasing anything from a direct air capture ton to nature-based solutions to mitigate those, those residual emissions. Whilst we're on the subject of Microsoft, I saw that you developed this criteria for high-quality carbon dioxide removal in partnership with them. Can you maybe elaborate on what some of the benchmarks that you're using to encourage standardization going forward were? Yeah, so uh, this is a, a piece of work that we're, we're quite proud of. We're actually going to update it soon for this year. We're continuing to kind of evolve best practice, but Really, this two-pager was a combination of our efforts and the team at Microsoft. They've got a great team in the sustainability department to give some guidance to the market about how to put together high-quality carbon removal programs. So that's everything from, you know, how do you ensure that your baselines are accurate? So if you're doing a project that you're measuring appropriate baselines, leakage, uh, are you purchasing a credit that's additional? So are you purchasing a, a, a credit that won't exist absent your, your purchase for it. And because our team is cross-disciplinary, we try to provide both macro level, these must be true, these should be true for all of your projects, but then also specific vertical level. So like what makes a good DAC project, for example. And then embedded in all of this, and we're, we're working to continue to evolve these, are you know conceptions of environmental or climate justice within how you're looking at a project. So if you're doing a soil project or a tree project, are you not just not causing harm, but are you positively impacting societies that you're, that you're planting your, your crops or you're increasing your, your forest around? Now, you touched a little bit on some of the information that you need to gain in order to gauge the standardization of these credits. Um, one of the professors at NYU, Aswith the Modern, recently talked about ESG carbon credits and the problem of measurement being endemic and greenwashing in ESG being a feature of it and not a bug. I'm curious what sort of your take on it is and where you see this lack of data being a problem and how you think it can maybe be solved. Yeah, I, I don't know the work. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'd be interested if you could send it to me, actually. Um, but I, I think as a, a broad point, you know, he's he's 100% right to identify challenges with kind of ESG, challenges with carbon offsets historically. We've published a lot on the state of the voluntary carbon market, and it is not good. When we look at the amount of credits that are out there, very, very small percent, I mean, single digit percent qualify as what we would determine would be high quality. So things that actually are removing, reducing carbon, most of the credits are, are not additional. They're not things that we would recommend to clients. So to the extent that people are purchasing these large majority of credits to kind of wipe away their carbon sins... That, that is not doing any good for the environment. And we kind of agree with that prognosis. I, I struggle to make like sweeping ESG claims because it like means so many different things to different people. We are firm believers that we need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's not 
us, that's the IPCC and the, the scientific consensus, we do view a very important tool to achieve that as companies purchasing these credit to get cost curves lower, it provides frameworks that governments can adopt over time. We think that work is important. So I'd, I'd likely share many of his critiques, but I do view this as a very important mechanism to push forward some types of climate solutions. I guess as we talk about the integrity of the products that you're dealing with, it'd be interesting since you come from this finance background to maybe talk about the integrity of the market itself, markets like the voluntary carbon market. When you commoditize these sort of scientific concepts, how do you think traditional finance reacts to it from a technical standpoint and how big up is the market and how ready is it to satisfy the massive increase in demand? It's not ready. And the market, I think, is poorly suited for commoditization. I mean, my, my career has been in, in trading commodities and many people want to compare, you know, voluntary carbon credits to like Brent crude, which can have a benchmark and then some small basis differentials that refer back to the benchmark. That's exceedingly difficult in voluntary carbon. Some carbon credits last, if you purchase the carbon, the storage lasts a long, long time. So if you do direct air capture, the, the carbon is stored for, for thousands of years. Others have very short-term storage. You need mechanisms to have like kind of mental models around how, and scientific models around how to compare the durability of the storage, but it doesn't lend itself to an easy commodification. So I think some of the early pushes went too far in standardization of different credits. I think we need to get better at understanding, like, like in the Microsoft papers, what is excellent in each of the different verticals to provide better framework. But I worry some of the initiatives have moved too quickly just to like trade a bunch of stuff or in the crypto landscape to onboard a lot of pretty bad credits onto a, a coin without thinking through what are the underlying kind of real world challenges within those credits and how those need to develop. Now, I think sort of as we talk about the VCM, and you also alluded to a little bit earlier that there are some residual emissions for firms where it's very difficult to remove it. We've been on a sort of climate tech sprint for a whole semester now on the podcast, and we're always very curious to, to hear people's opinions on greenwashing. We've been using the analogy of paper indulgences, and lots of people criticize voluntary carbon market as facilitating that. I'm curious with your work with firms, how much of it is focused on short-term solutions to the business practices? versus how much of it is more of a process to cleaning up their business and making sure that it's more of a net zero thing versus just replacing existing methods? Um, I would say most of our clients that, that we're working with do have you know, pretty long-term plans for how they're thinking through, thinking through these things. You know, we're mo working predominantly with kind of larger businesses. We, we are going to expand and have work with small and medium-sized businesses as well. But I, I think that the companies have taken a pretty long-term approach to planning out some of these things. Sometimes, if anything, you know, not particular to our clients, but in general, like some of the approaches are too long-term, right? Like we don't like it when there's a, you know, a company has a, a 2050 goal, but no particular interim steps to get there by 2050. There needs to be short-term actions to back up those long-term plans. So it's a mixture across different industries. I, I don't know that there's like, one answer to it that would categorize all firms. And you talk about how right now a lot of your clients are quite big and late stage in their development, but you have this desire to move a little bit earlier or smaller. How important do you think it is to democratize access to these sort of services to businesses when they are starting and making sure that being ESG conscious is built into the business plan rather than it's an afterthought once growth is achieved? 
Yeah, it, it's a great question. I think it's very important. Um, I think we are trying to make it easier for folks. There, there is a fundamental challenge, right, that it is, it's expensive. It's not that the service of like figuring out what to do is terribly expensive, but high quality carbon removal today is expensive. So if you are an entity that is emitting CO2 and you really want to do this well, you have to spend money. There's no way around that. It's not like, you know, in the power markets, if you buy renewable power and often cases, you can get um, lower prices for literally the same electrons, the same good. Here, you're cleaning up a waste system, and that can be expensive for early stage companies. I've been pretty impressed that many are taking this as part of like their founding ethos. We want to be there to, to help them. Now, I'm curious, before we move on to more of the capital management side, what do you think is some of the biggest obstacles that you've witnessed and experienced from the advisory service in identifying and monitoring effective removal projects? I think there's a bunch. I mean, right now there's total uncertainty about will this become regulated? If it becomes regulated, how? How do my current you know, offset or current sustainability programs dovetail with coming regulations that I don't know what they're going to say? Right. That's that's a huge source of uncertainty for companies that makes it hard for them to, to kind of plan appropriately. There is still a problem of too many bad offsets in the market that makes it very easy for people to anchor low price expectations because they're they're used to seeing these things in the market. So they don't want to spend much money on it. That kind of needs to go away. I think those are the two major hurdles, like lack of regulatory certainty and then a market that has not functioned very well over time, that's kind of created some ex-ante expectations for people on price. Interesting. So I think now I want to start diving a little bit deeper into carbon direct capital management, which for the listeners is it's the more financial side that makes the direct investments in these leading carbon removal and utilization companies. So I'd love to first hear about some of the portfolio companies. Yeah. So, you know, we like to invest where there are big problems. So, you know, when you look at the sort of decarbonization landscape, you know, heavy industry, for example, is a huge percentage of the overall problem that gets relatively little funding. Um, and we've made relatively little progress, aviation fuel, et cetera. So we're investing in sort of the Venn diagram, if you will, of big climate problems where our team has specific expertise, and that's in carbon capture utilization storage, hydrogen and carbon dioxide removal. So we're not focused on mobility. We're not focused on nuclear. These are interesting areas, but it's not our area. So we're investors in things like point source carbon capture. So capturing CO2 that would have been emitted from a cement facility, capturing that CO2, liquefying it and storing it. We're investors in CO2 utilization companies. So companies that are taking carbon, converting it to something else. So it could be carbon monoxide, could be chemicals, something, it, it could be built, built materials, uh, something that has a market value. And we're investing in the part of the market where we think you'll get the sort of green premium, as Bill Gates would describe it, to zero or negative, e.g. cost-competitive carbon utilization companies. That's a big part of where, where we're investing. And then the final buckets are carbon dioxide removal, which is physically taking CO2 that's already in the atmosphere and removing it and durably storing it. And then we do invest in, in hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel. So those are like our, our areas. We make minority investments into companies in this space. And, uh, you know, we think we're kind of hitting the right growth potential for revenue generation and also capturing kind of the most significant carbon areas with our investment work. You talk about hitting the right growth potential. I'm interested to hear more about how you balance this mission-driven aspect of the portfolio companies with obviously your obligation and desire to deliver returns to the institutional investors. 
Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I mean, we operate an institutional firm, so we underwrite to financial returns. Um, our space is one where our company's revenue is quite literally derived from CO2. Mm -hmm. So we have very tangible measuring of, you know, if you're a point source capture company, you are earning your revenue by the numbers, the number of tons of CO2 that you are capturing and being paid for. Carbon dioxide removal, the same thing. And then when it comes to carbon utilization, it's also quite a, a, a sort of tactile, measurable impact on the CO2 side. So for us, it, it, it frankly doesn't run in conflict. It, it is our revenue opportunity. So our addressable market is the carbon that we can convert, utilize, or, or remove. And that's our, our approach to it. But we are delivering financial returns to our investors. I also think that's incredibly important to do. You know, there's, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the call, you know, there's $2 trillion invested annually in, in oil and gas and a billion dollars in CCUS. If there's no financial return available, there's no chance that we're going to scale the amount of capital that's needed. That capital does not exist absent investing in and creating strong financial returns. What do you think is needed from the venture capital side to help these companies grow? Is there a lot of value add in the space currently, or is it more of a sort of, this is a capital thing and you use your scientific team of advisors to assist where, wherever possible? How can maybe venture capital evolve to assist the process of growing these carbon removal companies? Yeah, I, um, it's, it's another good question. I mean, um, sometimes I think that venture capitalists, if they're going to invest in the space, should do so with a, uh, somewhat of a technical lens. Um, we, we really need to be careful that we're backing companies that do have a carbon impact, that if you're investing in a carbon utilization company, you're really running a full life cycle carbon assessment. Like if they're using a ton of energy to do it, are you counting for that when you count their carbon impact, if you will? That's very, very important. And I think venture capital can do a, a good job with that. I, I actually think, you know, when we see all the government funding, some of the VC funding, you know, I'm not sure like the greatest need actually is in the VC space. I think there's quite a wide range of technologies that are ready to scale that actually need kind of later stage capital, right? So we need to de-risk the technologies and then get projects built, get stuff scaled, get, get the increase in deployment. I think that's like the biggest part of the market that's yet to really um, develop and uh, is coming. Yeah, I think I definitely want to touch on how finance can work in, in tandem with climate science and how the government can assist in that process. I know that the Senate just passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act, and with that, a lot of money is being diverted towards hydrogen projects, carbon removal, and carbon management infrastructure. It's clear that the market for carbon removal and the VCM will both need to scale in the short term. How do you think you can ensure, maybe from a, a government side or from a, a financial side, that the market is scaled in a robust way? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of the folks on our team have you know, previous government experience. We like to be a resource whenever people ask what we think. We're submitting comments now to the SEC proposal on disclosure. We'll publish those comments after we send them to the SEC as well. We like consulting with, working with nonprofits that are talking with government. How do you actually do procurement? We're working with our portfolio companies as they're submitting RFIs to work within those clusters that you mentioned. So like the hydrogen cluster, CCS cluster, CCUS cluster, our portfolio companies would value working there. We're helping them with those applications. I think it's all of the above, right? And then the other thing that we think we can continue to do 
you know, you saw the the Microsoft work that we publish. We're going to be publishing some additional things where our views on what makes up a high quality carbon credit are available. We can talk about them with regulators and we hope that they're useful when they're thinking through their designs. Now, you mentioned a little bit before about how Web3 and cryptocurrency has been attempted to be introduced into the sort of ESG sphere, going off the whole White House litigation and their recent published paper about how they can use cryptocurrency to assist in public work. Do you think there is a, a time in the future where there will be some sort of governmental cryptocurrency in order to aid in the voluntary carbon market or in the trade of carbon removals? I think of all the things that are challenging that need to be addressed in carbon credits, the integration of blockchain is sort of among the least like important, right? So things that could potentially be helpful, you know, measuring different ledgers, following transactions, doing better contracting work. I don't want to say they're, they're totally uninteresting. It's possible that there's a use case for that going forward. It's much, 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 much lower than like the real world concerns of getting the carbon credit quality right in the first place. Crediting, trading, contracting is not that hard for carbon offsets. A lot of these are bilateral contracts. Many people are simply buying to retire the credits or not being traded. So possible implications, but not really top of mind. Now, you mentioned how clients are buying the credits to remove them straight away, and it's not more of a trading or a speculating purpose. Do you think there will be a point in the future where, like the commodities exchange, people are speculating on carbon offsets? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, yes. And, and to be clear, like the market writ large already has a significant amount of that. So credits that have been purchased but not retired have been increasing pretty dramatically, in part because there have been some crypto programs that have been buying up credits, betting the price will go up. They claim that they're retiring credits, which is increasing the quality in the market. It's actually, that's not true. They, they've merely been encouraging more poor quality credits onto the, the marketplace. So our clients are predominantly like the end users, right? That are really looking for the environmental benefits. You know, the commodity markets, there's room for speculators to, you know, take price risk, have a forward view, things like that. Um, It's a bit different, I think, in the carbon credit land because like you need to find the end user who actually wants to retire the carbon benefit and put it out of use. So I'm not sure it will ever look like your normal commodity trading. Now, I think it's interesting because we've had some guests on the podcast before who tackle carbon management from a consumer side, and yours is obviously solely from a business advisory side and from the venture capital perspective. Do you see a point in the future where Carbon Direct will open up to consumers or will you stay within the business lane? Yeah, I mean, we'd love to, right? I mean, the idea of the work that we're doing is not to like kind of create high quality portfolios for the Microsofts and equivalently large companies and nobody else um, like that. That is not what we want to do. The reason we've started with large companies is like there's money. Um, this is it is expensive to do. We need concentrated buckets of capital to get the market going. And one thing folks like Microsoft and Shopify has done this as well that I think is great is, you know, purchasing some high cost credits now to try to help get the cost of the curve lower over time. So that ultimately, like when consumers come into the market in a bigger way, which I think we really want that to happen, our hope is they're actually playing less because you've got these, um, you know, very wealthy companies that have picked up the first purchases, which are higher cost, you're getting a lower cost going forward for consumers. And we'd like that very much. I would emphasize to people, I know that there is interest in engaging in the market, that the quality, the amount of good credits that are out there is 
extremely de minimis. By that, I mean, we've bought most of them. So I, um, I, I don't see it yet that there's all these good ex post credits that are around there that if only, you know, consumers had access to, um, they could participate as well. Regrettably, they don't exist. So the things that consumers are buying are of particularly low quality, which is unfortunate. So we're looking to increase the quality of good supply out there, and then hopefully more people can participate. You talk about increasing the quality of good supply. What do you think is needed to increase that quality without necessary and at the same time the quantity without sacrificing one for the other because there is such an increase in demand how can we start to satisfy that demand and also satisfy the demand for high quality removals yeah so it's a good question i mean they're, they i think they run in in tandem with one another so by signaling like with the microsoft paper we publish a lot with shopify we'll publish with other clients by signaling that the corporate demand is for higher quality um credits and that we define higher quality by X, Y, or Z, you give the demand signal for that, then the market generates supply to meet that. You can then easily generate more credits of that vintage, of that style to sell to um, to sell to, to, to increase the supply in the market. And that, that is happening slowly. How would one be able to start publicizing their demand in a transparent way, do you think? There's a bunch of different ways. I mean, there are initiatives like the um, uh, it got off to a bit of a rocky start, but there's things like the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets. It's being sort of regenerated. We're, we're trying to be helpful there where there will be principles around like what makes good credit. And we're going to do our best to make sure that those principles are well done. Um, I, I think that people can start looking at those types of market like signals as um, direction in how to do this. I, I think that's the best next step. Hopefully the SEC and others follow suit. Now, you mentioned there the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. I believe that's a European-focused initiative with Mark Carney. Would you say that there's a lot of consensus internationally around the next steps, or does it vary from geographical area? The scientific consensus is quite clear. Um, we need to uh, reduce emissions as quickly as possible, and it is unavoidable that we'll need large-scale carbon removal, and carbon removal requires durable storage around it. I think that's clear. I think that there's a clear sort of increased interest in permanent carbon removal as opposed to avoidance credits. I think that's becoming a consensus. The exact standards? No. I mean, there's debate. There's debate about how to value short-term storage versus long-term storage. There's a debate about whether and how to value what are called co-benefits, the secondary impacts of, of the credits. It's not, it's not an easy thing. There's a lot of stakeholders. A lot of people already have credits that they want to sell that won't get kicked out of the new regime. I think the core science is quite clear. The mechanisms for delivering on that are challenged. I think just before we get into the quick fire questions at the end, I'm very curious as to what some of the lessons that you've learned so far since entering this sort of industry have been, because you come from that sort of very financial background. I think it's interesting your path now into ESG and climate? Ooh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, it is interesting how little um, sort of rules of the road there have been. Um, you know, if in a, a hedge fund, right, if you if you make a certain return, you make 7% per year, it's 7%. It's not 7.5, it's not 6.5. <laughs> but like in um, carbon, which is vastly more important, the variance that people are willing to accept in terms of like disclosure was 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 surprising to me. My, I hope we're helping make that better, but it was surprising to me the extent of it. 
Um, the other thing is just, you know, how hard it is, right? I mean, you know, companies make these pledges. The team may or may not have any familiarity with like how to actually execute that. There's not enough human capital, I would say. There's not enough people who know how to do this. So, you know, oftentimes very well-intentioned people are assigned to like run the sustainability program, but they don't particularly know how to put together a plan for removing carbon or managing carbon. So there's just a lot of like building that needs to happen for this to work well. Finally, we're going to finish off with our quick fire questions. So it's a segment dedicated to rapid questions and short answers. So to start off, apart from Founder Friendly, what's the last podcast that you listened to? Oh, um, you know, there's a bunch. Uh, Pre Parara, I love. I think he's at NYU actually now. His like sort of legal takes, and he's a great interviewer. He's great. And then I'm a, an addict to the Bill Simmons series of basketball podcast related things which have absolutely nothing to do with carbon in any way. What's the last book that you read? You know, I'm, I read read a lot. I've been reading a really cool little book on photosynthesis of all things. Recently, it's a short book. It talks about algae. It talks about ocean sequestration. It talks about the genetic traits that are shared between humans and plants, which I had no idea. There was such a cross-correlation. So it's a really cool little book on that. And then I'm also... I for avoiding carbon after dealing with it for seven days a week. I'm a big detective fiction fan. So whatever novel I can pick up for a beach read is fun. And what's the last song or album that you listen to? Oh man, I must confess that I've become addicted to the Spotify daily mix one, two, three, four, which pumps me with some algorithmic measurement of what I should be listening to on any particular day. I know that's a very uncool answer, but I am quite hooked on it. No, it's a very powerful algorithm for sure. <laughs> it seems to know what I like before I know what I like, and uh, yeah. it just is what it is, I guess. Now, I'm curious about this one. I can't guess the answer. Do you hold any crypto or any NFTs? Are you bull or bear on Web3? Um, I do own some. Uh, I, I think it's like kind of a store of value gold type thing as a portfolio. Um, sure, why not? I, I am not dogmatic about it one way or the other. There are many people who vehemently think it's the worst thing in the world and others who think it's going to solve all the world's ills. And I am like nowhere near either extreme. Web3, I've tried to read through the various descriptions defining the difference between Web2 and Web3. I've yet to understand those distinctions. So I I don't know whether I'm bullish or bearish on it because I don't know what it is. If you could pick three people to listen to be interviewed on this podcast, who would you say it would be? Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a, a friend of and a big fan of David Keith, who is at Harvard. He's a solar geoengineering is best known for, but he's also been a leader in carbon removal. I talked to David about if I were doing a podcast, I think the most interesting thing would be to talk about the difference between time strands of biological carbon management and long-term permanent and why the sort of physics and math behind that are different. He'd be a great He'd be a great guest. I think policy is super important for everything. So, uh, you know, Gary Gensler at the SEC and how they're thinking through regulatory framework. I think he's like super important for how the market develops and be curious for him. And then I guess I don't even know the person's name, but the Gensler equivalent in the EU, I, I'd get them as well. Yeah. And I think like when people, you know, podcasts really like, and we really like, you know, the super cool founder who's got a new company to take CO2 and turn it into something else. 
And we like that too. That's like where we invest our money. But if you're looking at like the macro kind of climate world, it's the Genslers and the EU equivalent that probably hold a pretty big pen right now. And, and I think you should talk to them. Who or what is your inspiration and why? You know, I've got an, an awesome team. I mean, we, we really did start the company because I've been working with folks like Julio Friedman, who's, who's our chief scientist, who's a sort of carbon wrangler and well-known for it. Jen Wilcox was very important in starting the company. She's gone to run the Department of Carbon Management within the DOE. So she's, she's left to go, to go do that. And the DOE is in very good hands with, with Dr. Wilcox there. But like, I just learned so much from folks like that. Other members of our team, David is another good example. And they, they're very generous with like sharing information. So just like stuff's on the web for free, you know, like there are lectures on carbon management. You can just like plug into them and it's, it's really quite cool. And that's been really important for how we structured the company. And then finally, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, I guess I did it to some extent, but you know, stay curious on, on things like this. You know, I, I was investing um, in a very different way and then found, found carbon through the work of like Julio and Jen and that kind of crew. Um, I think I did it, but maybe accelerating that, right? So finding things that you're like, you're really interested in that are important learning about them and maybe not being able, not being afraid to sort of dive into them as early as possible. If it's something that you're really interested in, really care about. I mean, climate's interesting because it's like serious challenge and it, it, you know, depresses people all the time. It's also, it's also quite fascinating, right? It's really interesting how you can use a machine to capture CO2 or use soils to, like, it's, it's quite an interesting area. It happens to be a very serious one, but it, it, it's fun to learn about. I think that's just about everything we have time for today, but I've loved having you on. I thought it was a really insightful conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. And I really look forward to tracking Carbon Direct's progress in the future. Thanks very much and appreciate your time.